Hello everyone, my name is Blake Alexander. And my name is Chase Carter. And this is the Blake and Chase Show. How are we doing today, Chase? I'm doing good, I guess. Chase, we've hit the big one. This is crazy, this is excellent. We have our first interview. This is big. This is big, man. All right, we just got it. This guest is amazing. Wait, who, who, who is it? Is it the president? All right, nope, he's better than C- the president. C- can, we pli- can, can we finally find out why he hasn't visited the border yet? Well, <laughs> Blake has died from laughter. We will be right back. In today's episode, we're going to be delving into the remarkable life of Charles Black, a oh. man of many oh. talents and experiences. Notably, guess what? He was one of the eight students personally taught by Dr. Martin Luther King at Morehouse College. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Right. So he served as a chairman in the Atlanta student movement and later became an editor for the Atlanta Inquirer newspaper and played a pivotal role in founding the national consulting firm Frontiers Unlimited. He did this with some luminaries you might know, John Lewis, Julian Bond, Lonnie King Jr., His journey extends beyond the boardroom, as he's also a seasoned actor with credits in stage, screen, and television. Beyond his personal achievements, Charles Black is a mentor, particularly for younger generations involved in community and political activism concerning civil and human rights. His contributions were recognized with the prestigious Presidential Medal of Honor for a Lifetime of Community Service, presented by Barack Obama. Why did that sound like one of those football commercials? (laughs) What they do, presented by Bud Light. (laughs) And what's the final point to bring all of us home, Chase? And of course, he holds a special place in our lives because he's our uncle. The most important point of all for this interview. Yes. We started off this conversation with him by going about his early life, right? This started during the writer's strike when all the stuff was going on. The actors were going on strike. It was whole bad. It was a whole big bad business. But now well, that's done. It's over with. You can now, go back to work. Now the strike is over, the ride can back get back to writing bad Marvel shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're going to release Echo. It's going to be a whole thing. Anyways, we sat him down. This is what he had to say about his childhood. My mother, uh, your great-grandmother, um, was one of 22 children. All single births, same mother and father. And uh, and, and uh, my mother was uh, kind of in the middle of that of that group. My father was one of 15 children, okay? Now, um, a number of their siblings had a lot of kids as well. Uh, there were some, especially on my mother's side, that had 10, 11, 12 kids, uh, which means that I ended up with a lot of cousins. Uh, so you guys have, like, probably thousands of relatives <laughs> that you don't know about and have not met and may never meet. Um, but um, they grew up on... Um, on the farms down in Lowndes County, Georgia, which is um, where Valdosta is the, uh, the, the capital city. And uh, in Valdosta State is down there, well-known uh, college, uh, university. Uh, they, their parents had been um, uh, sharecroppers, but had um, a different kind of an outcome than a lot of sharecroppers did. They actually ended up uh, buying the land uh, that they that they farm, and um, in the end, I would estimate that there were probably about two thousand acres uh, in the family on 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 all sides uh, of, of the family. Uh, m- much of that land is still in the family. Uh, some of it was sold, um, you know, people sold it off, and, and some may have been lost to taxes or, or what have you. But but there are at least hundreds of acres still in the family in Lowndes County down there. 
wow, Blake, can you imagine having 20 of me running around? Honestly, no. I, I have to deal with you every single day. You know, you're always waking me up asking for food. I can't imagine 19 more saying, Blake, especially, feed us. Especially, especially when you don't know how to cook. Feed us and we will come. <laughs> Make the food in the morning and we will come. Especially Chase, no, that's like the what is it? The cloning films that everyone's always talking about. Like uh, they made a film, I think they cloned Tyrone. Like that was the latest cloning. Who is Tyrone? No idea. And why did they clone him? Who knows? <laughs> I do know that people had more children in earlier times, especially during the farming profession, which we he will get into in a little bit. Of course, I will say this: if there were nineteen of you, and if I could somehow, I'm not talking about the original version, which would be you, but if I could get at least. 18 or maybe half of them to join my side i could have a whole clone war man that'd be so funny well that's our verdict on that we're gonna hit it back with uncle charles's early years my parents uh ended up moving to miami uh, after my uh brother was born who was the oldest of the four of us uh and they um, the rest of us were born in miami after they moved there uh my uncle my mother's brother one of my mother's brothers my uncle Will, who was my favorite uncle, uh, had a grocery store down there at the time, and he went into the military. And so uh, they um, bought the grocery store from him. And uh, and that's where uh, our house was attached to the store. So we lived in the back part of the uh, the structure, and the grocery store was up front. And my parents ran this, this grocery store for, for a number of years. Uh, so that was the kind of upbringing we had. And the, one of the most interesting things about that experience um, for me was to see how generous my parents were uh, and that many people would come in who did not have money at the time for what they needed to buy. And they would ask that they would put it on the books. And they had this um, tablet that you get in, in primary school, the black and white speckled mm -hmm. kind of tablet. Right. Uh, and they would put the person's name and, and how much they owed on the book. And uh, years later, after that store was closed, there were still a lot of people on the book uh, because they would not uh, deny anybody a purchase if they came back again, even if they still owed money from uh, the previous time. And so I, I, I saw that generosity of spirit in my parents and, uh, and have tried to emulate them to the extent that I can. Why was Uncle Will your favorite uncle in particular? I'm curious. Why was he your favorite? For some reason, we, we started visiting uh, him in the summertime when we were kids, uh, and we would stay with him, and we would work with him on the farm. He was a, a, a just a very nice, mild-mannered kind of a guy, and um, and, his, and his wife, who at that time I think was his second wife, I think he had three wives and all, and I believe that was his second wife, my Aunt Maud, was a fantastic cook. And, uh, and, and on the farm, everything was fresh, and delicious because uh, you know you got your eggs from the chickens out in the yard uh the, the uh, chicken that you ate was fresh you know and and the, the the beef that you ate was fresh uh the uh the pork that you ate was you know fresh mm -hmm. uh the beans the corn all that stuff you know and it's just no comparison uh to the fresh produce um that is uh cooked and served the same day uh as to what you get in the grocery stores that uh, you know been on on trucks and shelves for weeks in, in many instances, um, but we just had uh, he was just a nice, kind, um, quiet, mild mannered sort of a, sort of a guy, 
And uh, and I just loved him. Just loved him and, and my Aunt Maud as well. What were some early childhood memories that stuck with you? You know, just working on the farm, that sort of thing. What food would she make? What's your favorite dish you think you remember? Oh, my gosh. Um, just so much. Um, I remember that I had um, uh, calves liver uh, for the first time down there. And I had had beef liver before that my mom had cooked real hard, you know, and it was bitter tasting to me and all that. And I did not like liver until I had calves liver that my aunt Maud uh, prepared, uh, which was nice and tender and just delicious. Um, but it was always, every meal was just really, really, really good. And and down on the farm, dinner was at, at noon, okay? People were out working in, in, in the farm and you would hear a, a whistle uh, blow in the distance, I think from some factory or something, which indicated, you know, it was noon. And then folk would come home from the fields and you'd eat the biggest meal of the day at noon. And then they would go back to the fields and the meal that you had in the evening was called supper. And it was a, a, a lighter meal. Uh, sometimes it might involve some um, some leftover stuff from, from dinner time. But in most instances, it was a whole new meal, but just not as much. So a, a part of the greatest memory for me of, of visiting the farm uh, was the food, you know, because it was always such good food. But, uh, you know, I was a kid. And uh, working out in, in the fields was a new and different experience for a city boy. So for, for a while, that was fun, too, you know, working in tobacco. Uh, now, cotton was never fun. Uh, it was a backbreaking kind of experience. Uh, and I could never pick um, the requisite 100 pounds of cotton a day that was expected of, of the, uh, uh, the, the least, you know, skilled cotton picker. And the reason for that was they told me I was attempting to gin the cotton in the field and that meant that you know i didn't want any trash in my cotton so i'm, I'm picking the leaves and the stems out mm-hmm. and also putting the seeds out of the cotton you're not supposed to do that you know that's what you send it to the uh, the cotton gin mill for right to clean all that stuff but i didn't want any trash in my cotton so i could never get get up to 100 pounds of cotton um but we also had had cousins um around who lived on uh nearby property so we could get together on weekends and uh, and play and you know ride the horses and get to go into town mm-hmm. you know and uh, one of the things you'd want to do is go to the theater and we would do that and you, you got to go shopping buy a little something so that was part of the fun as well would you ever ride the horses around town i know you just mentioned the horses i was wondering because we went about like two three years ago to uncle's place to see the horses. I was wondering, like, did you ride? Like, what was the horse's names? Like, you kept horses? No, actually, uh, I remember there was one horse that my uncle had uh, named, I forgot what his name was, uh, but it had, it had one eye. But it was uh, like a Palomino uh, pony size kind of horse. Um, and I remember riding him uh, once or twice, but uh, we would often ride the mules, actually. Um, and um, there was a big, the mules were bigger than, than the horses and they, you know, they, they were work animals and, uh, you know, they weren't going to run fast or anything, you know, so you just, just up there moving on. But we didn't, I didn't do that a whole lot. You know, I think stories are really important, especially family stories. Your yes. thoughts on that? Yes, exactly. I do think that family stories are very important. Like there's this guy in South Africa whose middle, whose, his two middle names are Adolf Hitler. So it's probably a big family story there. <laughs> <laughs>
just died from laughter. We will be right back. We've got a funny story of our own. Uncle Charles was the first one to actually come up with the name of our grandmother. Oh. Here's his tidbit on his story. Your grandmother, we call the Sergeant Major. Oh, okay. We know about that. And the reason we call her that is because she was the only one who could really kind of uh, tell everybody what to do in the family, including my dad. Uh, and, uh, you know, growing up in my time, uh, your response to an adult was, yes, ma'am, uh, yes, sir. Uh, and uh, you didn't ask a whole bunch of questions when they told you to do something. Uh, you surely didn't ask why, you know, because you did it because they told you to do it. Uh, but after the three of us who were older than your mom had gone off to school and all, and she was left there alone, uh, she kind of made herself uh, something of the boss and would uh, would uh, tell my dad, no, Daddy, you, you know, you shouldn't do that or you shouldn't eat that and all that sort of thing. And, and Dad, you need to listen to Mother, do what she told you, do that kind of thing. None of us would dare to have ever said any of that. Uh, so your mom was kind of kind of the uh, the new new sheriff in town. <laughs> that uh, and while we talk about your mom, now your mom was uh, was a really smart person. Um, I remember when she she was I think she came in second place in a statewide uh, for forensic uh, competition, which uh, she had, had to prepare and make a speech of some sort. And I think she placed second in the state or, or something like that. Uh, but she was always very bright um, and. Um, a strong, strong will. She's kind of quiet, like my mom, um, but um, but you know she was always a strong, uh, strong person. And you, and you, you kind of listen to Pat, <laughs> you know, just kind of the way it was. <clears throat> By the way, I had I had the privilege of naming her. I was about oh. six and a half or seven years old when, when, and she was the only one born in the hospital. By the way, so we went to the hospital to see her, and I don't know where I came up with the name from. Uh, but I came up came up with the name of, of uh, Patricia, um, and I'm probably the Patricia Ann because it seemed that anybody who was named Patricia was named Patricia Ann. Uh, but they they uh, they allowed me to to come up with that name, and um, and and so I did, and that's what she stuck with. But another okay. thing you need to need to understand about about our our family and our upbringing was that we were like your family, a very intact mama daddy children family. Um, you know, we went to church all the time. And when I would say all the time, that might mean four times on Sunday, uh, you know, and Tuesday night and Thursday night. Uh, you went to Sunday school, you went to morning service, you went to uh, evening Bible class, and you went to evening service, okay? And then on Tuesday night, you had Bible study. And then on Thursday night, you had song practice. And we learned to, to sing, because uh, we sing a cappella. We learned to sing from shaped notes. You know, each note had a different shape. And we, we learned to sing that way. And we would sing the notes first before we would sing the words. Okay. Do, re, mi, 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 fa, 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 whatever, you know, the word. But, but uh, in any event, uh, so we had that kind of a very uh, strict uh, church-going upbringing. My father and, and, um, and his older brother were two of the three elders, the lay leaders in the church where we attended. Uh, and, uh, so we were there, we were there all the time, but my, my parents had a very strong sense of right and wrong and good and bad. And they instilled that in, in us. And, um, and, and until this day, I try to honor them by trying to do good and trying to do right, uh, at least not get caught being bad. 
<laughs> but uh, that's the kind of uh, uh, upbringing that we had. Uh, you know, it was expected that you were gonna you were gonna be good and you were gonna do the right thing, and that you're gonna do your best. After we talked with Uncle Charles about his early life, the conversation then went into his college years, what he was getting up to at Morehouse during that time. This would lead into some of the things he did as it relates to activism, studying under Martin Luther King, things of that nature. Chase, do you want to tell the audience what you actually saw at CAU? We yes, saw this, we at took CAU, a picture. we saw a banner for his appeal for human rights, which was done by a variety of civil rights leaders. And we actually also saw a banner crediting the Atlanta student movement, which he was actually the chairman of. That is precisely the point. We are going to be getting into that in our next segment. To begin with, uh, I was recruited um, from Morehouse uh, from 11th grade. I was offered an early admission scholarship uh, to go to Morehouse from 11th grade instead of uh, finishing 12th grade. Uh, but I'd also been elected student body president for the next year. And uh, when I asked um, advice from the counselors at school or from my parents, the answer was the same. You know, well, it's up to you. You know, you do what you want to do. So I chose to stay for that next year and be big man on campus. And also, I kind of assumed that maybe there wouldn't be a 12th grade unless I needed it. Well, that was wrong. I didn't really, I didn't need it. Um, but uh, the interesting part about that is that the young man who had been elected vice president of the student body for the next year with me was in 10th grade. He was also offered an early admission scholarship to Morehouse in 10th grade. He accepted his. So he went to Morehouse in 10th grade. And so when I got to Morehouse, instead of his being a year behind me, he was a year ahead of me. And I bring him up for a, that reason of interest, but also he uh, ended up being a very important person um, in the world. His name was uh, Dr. Uh, Donald Hopkins. He is largely credited with the elimination of smallpox in the world and also the guinea worm. Um, and uh, he was uh, uh, President uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, said of him that he was his hero. Uh, he worked with Jimmy Carter a lot uh, around the world and uh, in Africa and a lot of other places uh, dealing with uh, um, issues of poverty and healthcare and all that sort of thing. Quick tidbit about the guy that Uncle Charles just talked about. Donald Hopkins, he's a pretty big name. He's a pretty big deal. So smallpox is highly contagious. It's pretty fatal. It's responsible for an estimated 300 million deaths in the 20th century alone. It was eradicated in 1980 through a global vaccination campaign led by the World Health Organization. The who? What? Wait, the, the who? We all tried to put us to death. Just because we get around. Yeah, the World Health Organization, that's what I said. So from 1984 to 1987, he was a deputy director and acting director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, after he was an assistant professor of tropical public health at Harvard School of Public Health. So not long after Hopkins finished with smallpox and it was officially declared eradicated, he then set his sights on a new target, which was the guinea worm, because he got some stories that were going on in Sierra Leone, I'm pretty sure, where all these people had these infections and there was videos and photos, well, mostly photos that were sent to the president and he saw all these different things of people having these worms that were coming out of their skin it was these little white worms it was disgusting don't don't look it up please yeah, please please don't look it up so Especially what carter does president carter was meal. president at the time he sends hopkins out he gives him a mission hey i need you to get rid of this you did really great with the smallpox let's move on to something else Hopkins helped with defeating the guinea worm by simply spreading awareness. He had to do this in a particular way because the way the disease worked was that if you got it, you had it. You couldn't really cure it. You couldn't really have a medication for it. 
So, so how does this disease work? Like, is it like a virus or? Well, this disease works because of unclean water mostly. Yes, Countries but what like is that. It? Hmm? What is it? Is it like a virus? It's or? a parasite. It's a literal worm. It's a little oh. white worm. The guinea worm didn't necessarily kill people, but it was extremely painful in the abdomen area and the bones. He educated the people on how to monitor the cases and filtration systems around oh, the countries. That, that's good because you know there was this YouTuber guy, like you know Mr. Beast. He actually built a hundred wells in Africa. Funny thing is that the number one case of diseases spreading out of control is simply that most people don't know about it, or there's improper documentation, so people don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. Hopkins understood that, and that's the reason why he was able to take care of it like he did. Now back to Uncle Charles's interview. Uh, so when I came to Morehouse, it was in 1958. And again, to kind of set the tone for what things were like, um, you know, things were still very strictly segregated uh, all over all over the South. Now in Miami, it was different than it was here in that um, a lot of the the white people in, in Miami uh, were many of them, many of them were, were what they call snowbirds uh, who actually lived in the North but had, had uh, winter homes in Miami or had moved from the North to Miami. You also had a large uh, Jewish community on Miami Beach. Uh, and you had um, the, uh, uh, the Cuban community, the Haitian community, Puerto Rican community, uh, Bahamian community, you know, people from a lot of different places uh, that made it more of a cosmopolitan environment down there. Uh, so we still had the, se the segregation and the separation and all that, but it was a bit more polite, you might say. And one of the interesting things I discovered was that, you know, you could be as black as, as your hair, Blake, and um, but if you spoke a different language, you know, you, you could enter the theaters, you could go to the hotels and the restaurants. It was only American blacks <laughs> that were not good enough, you know, to go to American places in the eyes of a um, white folk. All right, but. Uh, you have to understand how how separate and segregated things really were all over the South. That meant you went to separate schools, you went to separate hospitals, you went to separate churches, of course. Um, you would use uh, separate um, taxi cabs. Uh, you rode in the back of the bus. You know, just just all of this uh, crazy stuff like that. That made no sense then or ever. Um, but you know, you had that kind of uh, separate uh, life. For everybody, jobs were distinctly different and separate. Uh, you went to a newspaper, be black people looking for jobs. There would be a classified section that said colored, and the menial, menial jobs would be listed there for black people. Uh, so you know, this was still that period, and um, tangentially, uh, you know, it was this month um, in um, 1955 uh, that Emmett Till uh, was murdered. Well, he was 14 years old and I was 14 years old. So it, it had that kind of an impact on me because here's somebody my same age uh, being being murdered uh, the way he was. And you're familiar with the Emmett Till story. I don't know if you've seen the movie or not, but uh, a friend of mine that who I'd worked with in the movie played his mother, who made, in other movies, uh, played his mother, Danielle Deadbinder. Um But anyhow, that happened uh, in this month. Uh, you know, when we were both 14 years old, I was a little older than he, as I recall. Um, mm. So, um, you know, that's when all of this stuff was going on. And, and it was in 1954 that the Supreme Court ruled that segregated schools were unconstitutional. 
Uh, and so what they did in, in the case of Miami, they built us the best school in, in, the, in the whole state. So we wouldn't want to go to school with white folks, which we didn't want to do in the first place. But we didn't want to leave our school, our football team, our band, our school colors and all that. Uh, you know, those are the levels of uh, consideration that we had. So you were 14. Till was 14. I'm 14. This all happened on the same day, same time. How about that? It was, uh, it was, it was August 24th, uh, which was my my late wife's birthday. Uh, we weren't close married then because I was 14, but uh, it turns out it was um, it was her birthday. Um, uh, and um, it was, you know, this month. This was also the month when they, uh, they had March on Washington. That was on August 28th. You know, um, you know, four days after the anniversary of his of his uh, murder, um, and I I did attend the uh, the march on Washington. I was there at that time. But uh, you wanted to more about my Morehouse. When I got to Morehouse, um, one of the things I decided very early on, uh, when uh, and during the first week or two, uh, when I saw all of the pretty ladies uh, from the, the schools from Spelman and and, uh, and Clark, I said I can live here. And I have lived here ever since, initially because of all the pretty black ladies that I saw <laughs> on, on the campuses around there. Um, so you see where my head was. But <laughs> so it, anyhow, um, I, I discovered uh, in my freshman year that uh, college was not going to be as hard as I thought it might be, uh, and that, that I really didn't need 12th grade and all that. So I immediately got involved in extracurricular activities of various kinds. You know, and um, and not necessarily in order or or, or as early as uh, my freshman year, but I was involved in the um, the uh, Atlanta Morehouse Development Chorus. Uh, I was on the debate team. I was on the uh, the student council. I was on the, the student court. Uh, later on, I got involved in the civil rights stuff. I ended up being chairman in my uh, in my senior year. I was also uh, on the, the newspaper staff and became editor in my junior year and senior year of the school newspaper. It was on the uh, school yearbook uh, staff as well and all that. Um, so I, I got involved in all these different things um, because, you know, you could do your know, lessons and do that stuff too. You know? So anyhow, um, that was kind of the experience that I had there. Um, so you a funny thing, you know, the, when I was attending a, a school there, our dinner hour, the line closed at six o'clock, okay? If you're not in line at six o'clock, you were not gonna get dinner, okay? But guess what? Visiting hours at Spelman ended at six o'clock too. Oh, therein is the rub, because you're trying to spend that last possible second with that girl at Spelman and make it to the dinner line in time. So there was a nickname for people like me. They call us Willies. Will he make it? <laughs> <laughs> and often we didn't. Sometimes you would miss, miss dinner. Trying to get that last little kiss over over its moment. <laughs> so I was a Willie. I was a Willie. What skills or lessons did you learn from your experience as an editor on the Maroon Tiger? Yeah, we heard that was the name of your newspaper. Maroon Tiger, yeah. That's about the student court. Like, what is that? Would you judge cases at the college? I've never heard of a student court. Yeah, yes. Oh. Yeah, uh, if students are, you know, gotten some kind of a, a problem, misbehaving or whatever. Uh, they might be brought before the student court, and we would think of some, you know, some kind of whatever to do with them. I can't even remember what kind of uh, consequences there were 
uh, for, for those things, but uh, we did have such a judicial um, body on campus. And it was respected by, by the students. You didn't want to be brought before the student court. But it, with respect to the, uh, so I was an English uh, major and actually as much a math major as well. But uh, so, you know, uh, composition, writing, all that sort of thing was kind of my thing, which is why I ended up uh, with a newspaper. And uh, later, after I was out of school, I became editor of a weekly newspaper that uh, grew out of our movement, the Atlanta Enquirer. So I, you know, I've always had a an affection for language and 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 for words and their meaning, and uh, and their impact on, on uh, you know imparting uh, messages to other people and influencing the the uh, behavior of other people. Uh, I mean, we had the uh, weekly newspaper here. Uh, we were able to change a lot of important things in Atlanta through that newspaper. And that's something we could talk about later. But your question related to um, to what things were happening at, at campus and all that. Uh, one, one of the things you noted earlier, I did in my um, senior year, uh, I was a, a student of Martin Luther King Jr. And there were only eight of us in the only class that he ever taught. Uh, it was a, a seminar in social philosophy. And uh, we were just, you know, some of us were just rounded up uh, for this class. Uh, it wasn't a regularly uh, scheduled class on, you know, on, on the list or anything. And, you know, in my thinking, the class was probably uh, structured as much to give him some some income uh, as to anything else. But it was also to help those of us who were directly involved in the movement uh, get a, a clearer perspective of the historical significance of what we were doing uh, in the first place. So we realized, we you know, we weren't all that in a bag of chips. We didn't invent any of this stuff. That people have been doing uh, the similar kinds of things for generations, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years in various places and various uh, times and um, in different ways. Uh, so it, it, it did help us to put our movement into a broader historical perspective and, under, and understand better something about the shoulders on which we stood. Uh, so that, was, that class was very helpful in that respect. Were there any other schools that you were considering going to? Uh, I was offered uh, uh, scholarships to uh, several other schools. I don't remember all of them. I know that Hampton was one of them. Uh, I, I don't remember. There, I think there were three or four of us besides Morehouse or Clark uh, was one of them. Uh, and my my English uh, teacher, uh, my revered English teacher in high school, encouraged me to go to Harvard. She wanted me to go to Harvard. Uh, and I didn't ever really consider that seriously. But there was a, a Black guy who was a Harvard graduate in Miami that she asked me to go and talk to. And when I went to see him, he wasn't there. When, you know, I didn't follow up on it because I didn't really have an interest in, in, in going to Harvard. But in years later, um, it occurred to me and said, hmm, I must have done pretty well on the SAT and ACT stuff for her to, to think that I would uh, be a Harvard uh, material. So I, I, I have no idea what my scores were, but I always did well on standardized exams. And largely because it's something I discovered early on, and I always tell people who are going to be taking standardized exams to remember this. You always, you, you, these things are always timed. So for whatever time you have, go through that section of the, of the test three times. The first time you go through, you answer only those questions that you are absolutely positively sure of and put a little mark in the margin by the others. And the second time you go through, and you work on those that you know with a little work and a little extra thought, uh, you in all likelihood be, will be able to get, okay? 
And then the third time, there's some questions still left. Just guess your ass off, <laughs> you know, and you will always, you will always end up with a good score on a standardized exam. Because the problem is that a lot of people never get to questions that they would know the answers to because they're wasting time on the on the earlier questions with the assumption that the questions are going to get more difficult. And that's not necessarily the case. And, uh, and, the, and, and the folk who made the test don't know which things you know and don't know. Uh, so the stuff that you know may be way down the list and some of the stuff you don't know may be earlier on the list. Mm-hmm. So be sure that you go all the way through the test the first time answering only those things that you're absolutely positively sure of. Then you go back, you know, as many times as you need to, and as time allows to work on the others. So anyhow, that's why I I think I did well on standardized exams. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of schools, you know, Morehouse was only my only real preference. There were, there were uh, two, two teachers from my high school faculty who were Morehouse grads. And, uh, you know, they encouraged me to go to Morehouse. But also, you know, Dr. Benjamin E. Mays was a national phenomenon, you know, uh, uh, in, in the black community. And he was president of Morehouse at the time. So it, that was part of the appeal as well, to go to Morehouse. Well, we had so much fun with Uncle Charles this time around, but unfortunately, we can't get to all of it in one episode. That's too bad. So what we're going to have to do is to just have a part two, right? Yes, part two. And then maybe we can make a part three, part four, part five, part six, part seven. There, there's no stopping us mathematically. We can make so much content. Harry Potter did it, so can we. Tune in next time for Civil Rights to Hollywood, the Charles Black story. Thank you very much.